Hello there, and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes, and this podcast tells how the Crusades were inextricably linked with the Byzantine Empire. Indeed, the First Crusade was born out of Byzantine collapse at the Battle of Manticurt, and became a huge success really because of the fragmented state of the Islamic world in the 11th century when the Seljuk Empire was starting to break up. What we're going to look at in this episode is the other major Islamic state, which was the Fatimid Caliphate based in Egypt. Immediately after the Crusaders captured Jerusalem in 1099, the Fatimids launched a large attack on them, which the Crusaders defeated at the Battle of Ascalon, the last great battle of the First Crusade. But that was just the beginning, and what we're going to look at now is how the Fatimids launched a series of subsequent offensives to destroy the new Crusader Kingdom of Jerusalem in the early 1100s, and how they very nearly succeeded. As before, I'll read extracts from Sir Stephen Bruntman's brilliant History of the Crusades, which, although written many years ago, is still regarded as a classic. I'm reading a version that I've adapted to avoid some of the detail, and yes, it does go into quite a lot of detail, while preserving Runciman's glorious prose. So, let's go. Hope you enjoy it. In the year 1100, Baldwin became the king of Jerusalem. He took over from his brother Godfrey of Bouillon, one of the most famous of the First Crusaders, who had died prematurely from typhoid. He inherited an empty treasury and a scattered dominion, made up of the central mountain ridge of Palestine, the plain of Estrelon, and a few outlying fortresses set in a hostile countryside, together with a tiny army of lawless, arrogant knights and untrustworthy native mercenaries. The only organised body in the kingdom was the church, and within the church there were two parties, that of Dember and Arnouf. Godfrey's central administration had been conducted by his household, which was small and ill-suited to govern a country. The barons to whom border castles had been entrusted were left to rule their territories as they pleased. Baldwin saw that the most pressing danger was of a Muslim attack before his state could be set in order. Believing that the best defence is to take the offensive, he started out before he had even settled the urgent question of his relations with the patriarch Dombert, or had himself assumed the crown on a campaign to awe the infidel. His exploits on the First Crusade had given him a fearsome reputation from which he sought to profit. Barely a week after his arrival at Jerusalem, he marched down to Ascalon and made a demonstration in front of its walls. But the fortress was too strong for his little army to attack, so he moved eastward to Hebron and thence down into the Nageb to Segor in the salt land at the southern tip of the Dead Sea, burning villages as he went and on through the wilderness of Ed to Mount Hor and its ancient monastery of St. Aaron by Petra. Although he made no permanent settlements in the region, his progress cowed the Arabs. For the next few years, they refrained from infiltrating into his territory. He returned to Jerusalem a few days before Christmas. The patriarch Dombert 
had had time to reflect on his situation. He bowed to the inevitable, and on Christmas Day 1100, he crowned Baldwin king of Jerusalem. In return, he was confirmed in the Patriarchate. In the early spring of 1101, Baldwin heard that a rich Arab tribe was passing through Transjordan. At once, he led a detachment across the river and fell by night on its encampment. Only a few of the Arabs escaped. The majority of men were slain in their tents, and the women and children were carried off into captivity, together with a great hoard of money and precious stuffs. Amongst the captives was the wife of one of the sheikhs of the tribe. She was on the point of bearing a child, and when Baldwin learnt of her condition, he gave orders that she should be released with her maidservant, two female camels, and a good supply of food and drink. She gave birth successfully by the wayside, where her husband soon found her. Deeply moved by Baldwin's courtesy, he hurried after him to thank him and to promise that some day he would repay him for his kindness. News of the raid added to Baldwin's fame. In March, embassies came to Jerusalem from the coastal cities, Arsuf, Caesarea, Acre and Tyre, bearing valuable gifts, while the Seljuk Emir Dukak of Damascus sent to offer the sum of 50,000 gold bezants for the ransom of the captives that Baldwin had made at an earlier battle in 1100. This solved Baldwin's financial problems. However, the tribute that the Arabs paid did not benefit them in Arsuf or Caesarea, for in March a Genoese squadron was sighted off Haifa, and on the 15th of April it put in at Jaffa. Amongst the passengers was Morris, Cardinal Bishop of Porto, sent out as legate by Pope Pascal. Hitherto, Baldwin had been dependent for sea power on the small Pisan fleet that had accompanied the Pisan archbishop, his enemy, Dombert, the east. An alliance with the Genoese, chief rivals of the Pisans, suited him better. He hurried down to Haifa to greet them and to receive the legate, and took their leaders with them to spend Easter at Jerusalem. There they made an agreement to serve him for a season. Their payment was to be one-third of all the booty that might be captured of goods as well as of money and a street in the bizarre quarter of every conquered town as soon as the pact was signed the allies moved against Arsuf Baldwin by land and the Genoese by sea resistance soon broke down the authorities of the town offered to capitulate on condition that the inhabitants might emigrate safely with their families and their possessions to Muslim territory Baldwin accepted their terms they were escorted by his troops to Ascalon. Baldwin then garrisoned the town after assigning their share to the Genoese. From Arsuf, the Allies went to Caesarea, whose siege began on the 2nd of May. The garrison, relying on its old Byzantine walls, refused to surrender, but on the 17th of May it was taken by assault. The victorious soldiers were given permission to pillage the city as they pleased, and the horrors of the sack shocked even their own leaders. The cruelest massacre took place in the Great Mosque, which once had been a synagogue of Herod Agrippa. Many of the citizens had taken refuge there and begged for mercy, but they were butchered, men and women alike, till the floor was a lake of blood. In all the city only a few girls and young infants were spared, and the chief magistrate and the commander of the garrison, whom Baldwin himself saved in order to obtain good ransom money. The ferocity was deliberate. Baldwin wished to show that he would keep his word to all that came to terms with him. Otherwise, he would be pitiless. Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America Podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mio. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. Baldwin had only time to divide the booty according to his pact and to install a Frankish garrison before the news came to him that an Egyptian army had entered Palestine. The Egyptian Fatimid vizier Al-Afdal was eager to avenge the disaster at Ascalon two years before and had fitted out an expedition under the command of the Mameluk Saad Abdullah al-Khawazi. It reached Ascalon in mid-May and advanced as far as Ramla, hoping perhaps to penetrate to Jerusalem while Baldwin was still occupied at Caesarea. Baldwin hastened with his forces to Ramla, whereupon Saad fell back on Ascalon to await reinforcements. After fortifying Ramla, Baldwin set up his headquarters at Jaffa so as to be able to watch the Egyptians' movements and at the same time keep in touch with his maritime communications. Apart from a short visit to Jerusalem for administrative purposes in July, he remained at Jaffa all through the summer. At the end of August, an intercepted letter told him that new detachments had reached the Egyptians and that they were preparing to march on Jerusalem. On the 4th of September, Saad moved his forces slowly up to the outskirts of Ramla. Two days later, Baldwin held a council of war and decided to attack at dawn without waiting to be attacked. He had only 260 horsemen and 900 infantrymen, but they were well armed and experienced, while the huge army of the Egyptians, which he estimated at 11,000 horsemen and 21,000 infantry, was lightly armed and untrained. He divided his troops into five detachments, one under a knight called Bevold, the second under Geldemar Capanel, Lord of Haifa, the third under Hugh of Saint-Omer, who had succeeded Tancred as Prince of Galilee, and the fourth and fifth under himself. Inspired by the presence of the True Cross, by a stirring sermon delivered by Arnulf of Rose, and by a special absolution given by the Cardinal Legate, the Franks marched out to Ramla and at sunrise fell on the Egyptians near Ibelon, southwest of the town. Bevold led the attack, but his troops were mown down by the Egyptians and he himself slain. Geldemar Capanel hurried to his rescue, only to perish also with all his men. The Galilean corps followed, but they made no effect on the Egyptian masses. After heavy losses, Hugh of Saint-Omer extricated his men and fled towards Jaffa, pursued by the Egyptian left wing. It seemed that all was lost, but King Baldwin offered 
Sepulchre publicly confessing his sins before the true cross and then haranguing his company, mounted on his brave Arab charger, Gazelle, and galloped at the head of his knights into the heart of the enemy. The Egyptians, confident of victory, were taken by surprise. After a brief struggle, their centre turned and fled, and the panic spread to their right wing. Baldwin, forbidding his men to stop to pillage corpses or to sack the enemy camp, chased them to the walls of Ascalon. Then he rallied his men and retired to divide the spoils won on the battlefield. Meanwhile, Hugh of Saint-Omer had arrived at Jaffa to report that the battle was lost. The Queen and her court were waiting there. Hearing of the disaster and believing that the King was dead, they sent a messenger at once to the only man that they thought could help them, who was Tancred at Antioch. Next morning, an army came into sight. They thought that it was the Egyptians, and great was their rejoicing when they realised that it was Baldwin. A second messenger was dispatched to Antioch with the news that all was well, and Tancred, who had been prepared with some relish to set out for the south, was told that he could stay at home. For the moment, the danger had been averted. The Egyptians had suffered heavy losses and were not disposed to renew the campaign that season, but the resources of Egypt were enormous. Al-Afdal had no difficulty in equipping a second army that should continue the struggle next year. In the meantime, Baldwin received the visit of the princes that had survived the Anatolian Crusades of 1101. Led by William of Aquitaine, Stephen of Blois and Stephen of Burgundy and the Constable Conrad, and accompanied by various barons from the Low Countries and by Eckerhard of Aura and Bishop Manasses, most of whom had come by sea to Antioch, they reached the neighbourhood of Beirut in the early spring of 1102. To ensure their safe passage through enemy country, Baldwin sent an escort to meet them there and to convey them to Jerusalem. After celebrating Easter at the holy places, the leaders prepared to return home. William of Aquitaine safely embarked for St. Simeon at the end of April, but the ship in which Stephen of Blois and Stephen of Burgundy with several others had taken their passage was driven ashore by a storm off Jaffa. But before another ship could be found to accommodate them, there was news that a fresh Muslim host was marching up from Egypt. Owing to this fateful mishap, they remained to assist in the coming struggle. In mid-May 1102, the Egyptian army, consisting of some 20,000 Arabs and Sudanese, under the command of the vizier's own son, Sharaf al-Mali, assembled at Ascalon and moved up towards Ramla. Baldwin had made his preparations. An army of several thousand Christians waited at Jaffa and the Galilean garrisons were ready to send detachments when required. But Baldwin's scouts misled him. Believing the Egyptians to be a small body of raiders, he decided to destroy them himself without calling upon his reserves. He had with him at Jerusalem his friends from the west, Stephen of Blois, Stephen of Burgundy, the constable Conrad... Hugh, Count of Lusignan, and various Belgian knights, he proposed to them to set out with his cavalry to finish off the job. Stephen of Blois ventured to suggest that it was a rash undertaking. A better reconnaissance would be desirable, but nobody even listened to Stephen, remembering his cowardice at Antioch in the First Crusade. He joined his comrades without further complaint. On the 17th of May, King Baldwin set out with some 500 horsemen from Jerusalem. They rode merrily with little order when they came out into the plain and suddenly saw before them the vast Egyptian army 
Baldwin realised his mistake. But there could be no turning back. They were already seen in the Egyptian light cavalry was riding up to cut off their retreat. Their only chance was to charge headlong into the enemy. The Egyptians, believing at first that this must be the vanguard of a greater army, nearly gave up before the impact. But when they saw that no other force followed, they rallied and closed in on the Franks. Baldwin's ranks broke. A few knights led by Roger of Rozoy and Baldwin's cousin Hugh of Labourg cut their way through the Egyptian host and reached the safety of Jaffa. Many such as Gerard of Avene and Godfrey's former chamberlain Stablon were killed on the field. But King Baldwin himself and his chief comrades made their way into the little fortress of Ramla where they were surrounded by the Egyptian army. Nightfall saved them from immediate attack, but the defences of Ramla were pitiable. Only one tower built by Baldwin the previous year might possibly be held, and into that they crowded. In the middle of the night, an Arab came to the gate and asked to see the king. He was admitted and revealed himself as the husband of the lady to whom Baldwin had shown courtesy during his raid on Transjordan. In gratitude, he warned the king that the Egyptian assault would begin at dawn and that he must escape at once. Baldwin took his advice, however much he may have regretted the desertion of his comrades, and he was not a man with a highly developed sense of honour. He saw that on his own preservation depended the preservation of the kingdom. With a groom and three other companions, he slipped out on horseback through the enemy lines, trusting his horse, Gazelle, to take him to safety. Early next morning... The Egyptians stormed over the walls of Ramla and piled faggots round the tower in which the knights had taken refuge. Rather than perish in the flames, the Frankish cavalry charged out of the enemy with the constable Conrad at their head, but there was no escape. They were all hewn down on the spot or captured. Conrad's bravery so impressed the Egyptians that they spared his life. He and more than a hundred of his companions were sent in captivity to Egypt. Of the other leaders, Stephen of Burgundy, Hugh of Lusignan and Geoffrey of Vendôme were killed in the battle. And with them died Stephen of Blois, who thus by his glorious death redeemed his reputation. His wife, the Countess Adela, could sleep content. Meanwhile, the Queen and court were once more at Jaffa. There, Roger of Rozoy and his fellow fugitives told them of the terrible defeat. They feared that the king had fallen with all his knights, and they made plans to flee by sea while there was still time. But on the 20th of May, the Egyptian army came up to the city walls, and the Egyptian fleet approached over the southern horizon. Their worst fears seemed realised when an Egyptian soldier brandished before them a head that was recognised as the king's, but which was, in fact, that of Jebo of Winthak, who greatly resembled him. At that moment, as though by a miracle, a little ship was seen sailing down from the north with the king's own standard at the masthead. On his escape from Ramla, Baldwin had made for the coast in an attempt to reach the army at Jaffa, but Egyptian troops were scouring the countryside. For two nights and two days, he wandered through the foothills north of Ramla, then hastened across the plain of Sharon to Arsouf. He arrived there on the evening of the 19th to the astonished delight of its governor, Roger of Haifa. That same evening, the troops of Galilee, 80 picked knights under Hugh of Saint-Omer, who had hurried south on the news of the Egyptian advance, joined him at 
at Arsouf. Next morning, Hugh marched south with his men to try to break his way into Jaffa, while Baldwin persuaded an English adventurer called Goderick to take him on his ship through the Egyptian blockade. To cheer his court, Baldwin hoisted his standard. The Egyptians noticed it and at once sent ships to intercept him, but a strong north wind was blowing, against which the Egyptians could not get underway while it carried Baldwin safely into harbour. At once he set about reorganising his forces. Before the Egyptians had entirely closed in around the city, he broke his way out to meet Hugh of Galilee's company and to take them within the walls. Next he sent up to Jerusalem to summon all the men that could be spared from there and from Hebron. A local monk was found who was ready to take the message through the enemy lines. He left Jaffa under darkness, but it took him three days to reach Jerusalem. When he confirmed that the king was alive, there was great rejoicing. A troop of some 90 knights and rather more mounted sergeants was collected and was fortified by a piece of the true cross. It hastened down to Jaffa. The knights were well mounted and well armed and they forced their way into the town but the sergeants were driven into the sea. They abandoned their horses there and swam round into the harbour. Meanwhile Baldwin wrote to Tancred and to Baldwin of Edessa to report his heavy losses and to ask for reinforcements. Before the northern princes could set out, unexpected help arrived. In the last days of May, a fleet of 200 ships, mostly English and filled with soldiers and pilgrims from England, France and Germany, sailed in Jaffa roads with the help of the wind through the Egyptian blockade. They provided Baldwin with the additional men that he needed. On the 27th of May, he led his army out against the enemy. The details of the battle are unknown. It seems seems that the Egyptians vainly tried to lure him on and then encircle him, and that eventually a charge of the heavy Frankish cavalry broke their ranks and sent them fleeing in panic. After a few hours, the whole Egyptian force was in headlong flight to Ascalon, and their camp, with all its booty, was in Christian hands. Baldwin and his kingdom had been saved by a series of accidents in which the Christians not unnaturally saw the hand of God. Not least of these accidents was the incompetent strategy of the Egyptians. A small detachment of their troops could have captured Jerusalem immediately after the Battle of Ramla without seriously weakening the encirclement of Jaffa, but the vizier Al-Afdal was losing his grip. Nevertheless, in the summer of 1105, he made a final attempt to reconquer Palestine. A well-equipped army of 5,000 Arab horsemen and Sudanese infantry under his son Senna al-Mulk Hussein, assembled at Ascalon at the beginning of August. Profiting by the lessons of their previous failures, the Egyptians decided to ask for the cooperation of the Turkish rulers of Damascus. In 1102 or 1103, Damascus's help would have been invaluable, but the Turks could only spare a small army of some 1,300 mounted archers. In August, the Egyptian army moved up into Palestine, where the Turkish troops joined them after having come down through Transjordan and across the Negev. Baldwin was waiting at Jaffa when the Egyptian fleet came into sight. He took up a position on the inevitable battlefield of Ramla. Jaffa was kept under the command of Lithar of Combray with 300 men. With Baldwin was the youngest Damascene pretender, Itash, and the whole of the rest of the Frankish troops in Palestine. 
and the garrisons of Galilee, Haifa and Hebron, as well as the central army, 500 horsemen and 2,000 infantry. At Baldwin's request, the patriarch Evramar came down from Jerusalem with 150 men that he had recruited there and with the true cross. The battle took place on Sunday, the 27th of August. At dawn, the Patriarch rode up and down in front of the Frankish lines in his full robes, the cross in his hand, giving his blessing and absolution. Then the Franks attacked. A counterattack by the Turks nearly broke their ranks, but Baldwin, taking his standard into his own hands, led a charge that scattered them. The Egyptians fought more bravely than usual, but their left wing had gone off in a vain attempt to surprise Haifa and returned too late. By evening, the Muslims were beaten. Sabawa and his Turks fled back to their own land, and the Egyptians retreated to Ascalon, whence their commander, Sena al-Mulk, hurried back to Cairo. Their losses had been heavy. The governor of Ascalon was slain and the ex-commanders of Acre and Al-Suf captured and later ransomed at a high price. The chronicler Fulcair of Chartres could not help regretting that Sena al-Mulk had escaped because of the rich ransom that he would have commanded. But the Frankish losses also were heavy. After pillaging their camp, Baldwin didn't pursue the Egyptians further. The Egyptian fleet sailed back to Egypt, having achieved nothing except the loss of some ships in a storm. This third Battle of Ramla ended the last large-scale attempt of the Fatimids to reconquer Palestine. Although the Egyptians made small raids into Christian lands for the next ten years, Baldwin had succeeded in stemming the might of the Fatimid Egyptian Empire. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did, I'd be hugely grateful if you left a rating on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, since it helps so much to promote the podcast to more listeners. Thank you so much. You also might be interested to know that my own book, The Byzantine World War, which covers the collapse of Byzantium at Manzikert and the subsequent First Crusade, is now out in audiobook. And in the next episode, we'll hear more about the Kingdom of Jerusalem.